reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promise, he who promises is faithful. Please be seated. Good morning. There you are. It's good to have you all with us this morning. If you're visiting with us and, and you were able to receive one of those visitor's packets, at this point in time, if you would uh, pass that card to the aisle, I have some gentlemen who will be, I don't know where they'll be, but should be somewhere around this area. They'll come through and pick those up for you. Apparently, we don't have that, so here we go. Let me ask you a question. Does, uh, I hope the answer is no. But we'll just start right here. Does your mind work the way my mind works? I hope that's a no. Let me tell you how my, my, my mind works. I have so associated some things together that they cannot be separated. Ever. Before 1976 is when peanut butter was invented. And ever since 1976, I have associated peanut butter with jelly. Not just any kind of jelly, because my grandmother and several others of that generation would try at points and times to give us peanut butter and honey or peanut butter and syrup sandwiches, and it just wasn't right. And it has been so associated with jelly, it's not only just jelly. To eat peanut butter Correctly, you eat it with what kind of jelly? Grape, obviously. That's the only jelly that exists, grape jelly and peanut butter. You know, it's bad to live in this world where your mind just goes that way. Almost every night, almost every night at my house, the statement will be made, are you making popcorn? And the answer is, yep. And I don't make, the, don't, don't mistake popcorn with whatever you put in the microwave in those bags. That doesn't count. You know, I'm kernels, all that on. You know what goes with popcorn? Coca-Cola. The end. That's what goes with popcorn. Maybe if you're out there on the edge, some milk duds in there. That's what goes together. You know what goes with milk? Oreos. There, there is an alternative answer. Or chocolate syrup. Though That's what goes with milk. You can't say Tom without Jerry. And in the worst disguise known in human history, one pair of sunglasses changes the man who looks like Superman into the man who doesn't look like Superman. One pair of glasses changes Clark Kent into Superman, and that's the world in which we live, and that's the world in which we live today. You see, if we were able to get into a time machine and, and just go all the way back to Pentecost or even those days after, even up to uh, the year 325, and we were to meet anyone on the street and we were to say, where does the church meet? And they would take you to the gathering place, of the church for which Jesus Christ gave his blood. That's up until about 325. It takes a few years till 606. 
sticks to where that seed fully blossoms. The church for which Jesus Christ died splits. And now you have the church and the Roman Catholic Church. Go out here on the street today and ask somebody to take you where the church meets. Chances are you might make it here. You might not. You see, the world in which we live says any religious group that uh, tends to have some sort of Christianity tied to it, whether it be tightly or loosely, we call a church. And our world is shaped by religious thought. A few other things, but also religious thought. You take the people who came and settled our country and began those colonies. Uh, You take that group of people and you put it with people today who are living in the exact same location and you have two different schools of thought. Because our world is ever evolving in the way it thinks about things. And in that process, it begins to pull things apart that we have just somewhat kept together all of our time, like peanut butter and jelly. Did you know that you can't have some things without having other things? You know, it's impossible. Notice this. You can't have grace... You can't have grace without God. It's an impossibility. Grace, as we have coined the phrase, is uh, unmerited favor. That might be the worst and most vanilla and most uninforming definition of anything ever. What is unmerited favor? Now we have to define those two words just so we can figure out what grace is. Grace really is this, an opportunity offered by God to follow His will and be saved by His plan. Notice in Genesis chapter 6, we looked all the way back there in our VBS uh, this year. Go back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 in your mind. Here's what you'll read. And Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Why? And what is that? Just because God had grace toward Noah did not mean Noah was automatically saved. Didn't mean Noah was just the one guy God chose out of all of humanity to be saved and the rest of them can uh, work on personal flotation devices. You see, if Noah when God explained this plan, decided to alter the dimensions of the ark. He would not have followed God's will. If God, speaking to Noah, says, I want you to build an ark, and Noah says, God spoke to me, I must be better than most everybody, and didn't do anything with it, he would not have been saved by God's plan. Grace is simply an opportunity offered by God to follow Him and to be saved by His plan. Turn over to Titus chapter number 2. Titus chapter number 2. We're going to begin in verse number 11. There Titus writes, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness or worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see the grace that's mentioned there as as he begins saying the grace of God that appeared unto everyone? First, he mentions unto all men. All of of humanity has the opportunity even today to uh, access the grace of God. But there are a few restrictions. It has appeared unto us, but notice this, teaching us that we should deny some things and replace those things in our life. We should deny worldly lust and ungodly attitudes, and we should put in there soberness, and we should put in there righteousness, and there, in there we should put godliness so that we can live in this present world. What an interesting idea. We have the opportunity given to us by God to follow His will. Don't you know, preacher, about Ephesians chapter 2? I do. Don't you know about verse 8? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself? I do. Do you know about verse 9? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the free gift of God. Oh, yeah. Verse 10, how about this? We are His workmanship, made zealous unto good works. Grace does not save man alone, but you can't have grace without God. Do you know why that is? Because God is the source of grace. God is the source of grace. You can't have grace without God. Notice this. You can't have love without law. If you define love in our world today, you're going to have it defined more times than not this way to you. An unconditional positive emotion. How many of you have children? This is going to be very key right here. Pay attention. How many of you have always had unconditional positive emotions toward your child? Nah. Some of y'all, I'll see y'all up here in just a moment. We don't, we don't have those. Un- we do have an unconditional love toward them, don't we? But not every day is full of sunshine and roses. Let's be frank about it, Right? And that's because the way we define love, especially as we assign it to biblical love, we find that not being the case. Love found in the Bible is to to provide all good things for a person, even if they choose not to accept it. You see that funny-looking group of words right there that you can't read? That's a Greek word called agape. It means to, to provide what is best. So I live with two girls who live downstairs. And it is our desire as parents to provide the best for them. To provide them with every opportunity that they can have in order to be faithful to God. But here is the catch 22. They are people. And they will choose to do what they want to do. 
no matter how much I want them to choose to follow God and to do what's right, they have an option to not do that. Children, that is the cause of sleepless nights for your parents. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you and I look at chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we notice because of our keen sense of uh, detect, uh, detectiveness, I guess would be the best word, that chapter 13 falls right in between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Does it happen that way in your Bible? It happens right that way in mine and every other one I have. Chapter 13 deals with the emotion and the motive behind how these Corinthians are supposed to be using these spiritual gifts. And so as he begins 13, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and I don't have love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Give my body to be burned, and I have not love. It profiteth me nothing. The idea that God would tell them behind the fact of using these spiritual gifts in a positive manner in the first century is that it is motivated by love. Motivated by love. Notice this. You can't have law without love because love is the source of law. Imagine if you could, God saying, I want you to be a holy and a righteous people. All right, I accept that, God. I'll do that. How? Well, you just figure that out. You know why God gives me law? Because he can look back in the history of my life and see this. You're not good at making choices and decisions. Am I the only one in that boat? Why is this law given to me? Why am I taught how to live by God? Why am I taught what I should do and those things I should avoid? Because more times than not, I like the things I should avoid. And I avoid the things I should like. You can't have grace without God because God's the source of it. You can't have law without love because love is the source of law. Notice this. You can't have salvation without sacrifice. If you ever have a chance to speak to someone uh, who is not a part of the church for which Jesus died, who is a part of a, a denomination, if you ask them to, to define salvation, generally they'll say it this way, God changes man so that man does not want to follow sinful actions Anymore. And on the surface, on the surface, that sounds good. On the surface, even, that sounds biblical. The idea comes up then what happens if a man decides to involve himself in a sinful action? Well, there is a 
there is a, a solution for that in the denominational world. The solution is that that man was never saved in the first place. When you and I read through the Bible and read about salvation, what we read is this. Man's desire has changed to follow God, and he responds to temptation in a different way because temptation is still there. Now, now notice what it says here. God doesn't change man. Man's focus changes to God. Man's focus is so far on to God that his choices now change. We find that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. You can't have salvation without sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 10, here's what you'll read. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices, which they may year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they have ceased to be offered. Notice what's being said here in verses 1 and beginning of verse 2. That old law under which that, that Hebrew congregation wants to go back so badly, Paul, by the inspiration of God, writes this, the sacrifice is wrong. The sacrifice doesn't work. The sacrifice is not that one that makes you, you perfect, doesn't make you complete. Why? Because you continually, year after year after year after year, have to make those sacrifices. It's not the case with the sacrifice of the New Testament. Imagine if you could, Jesus suffering that death and 40 days later being raised to the right hand of the throne of God only to have to be sent down the next year to suffer that death and 40 days later be resurrected only to be sent the next year for the next thing, and every year after that, making that same sacrifice. It would seem 2,000 years after that that Jesus would say, isn't this enough? It would be Jude, and Jude verse number 3, who would say, this sacrifice was made once and for all. Once and one time only. The sacrifice was the right sacrifice at that time. When you and I look at these sacrifices that were made year after year after year, and we look at them from the historical point of view backward, we see what is known as uh, placeholders, bookmarks for the coming real sacrifice. All of these animals that were sacrificed all of these years ago and throughout the Old Testament are made in place of Jesus the Christ who gets there and does away with sacrifices. Notice in verse number 2 as we go on. Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there's a remembrance, a remembrance again made every year. For it is not possible... For the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sin of the world. And yet, we read one chapter earlier that it is by sin that man is saved. It is by sacrifice and by blood that sin is remitted. Imagine if you could, salvation being offered without sacrifice. 
from the point at which that sacrifice was made in the Garden of Eden up until the point that Jesus passed from this life to be raised in, in a resurrection three days later. Sacrifices have been a requirement of God. And I'll tell you something else. Sacrifice is still required by God. You'll never have faithfulness or fullness in eternity without having faithfulness in the present. You won't have God or grace without God because God is that source. You won't have law without love because love is the source. You won't have salvation without sacrifice because that's the vehicle by which God uses to save us. But you won't have fullness in eternity and a home with God until you have faithfulness in the present and the hope of Jesus Christ. You say, well, well, I've done those things that God would require of man in order to be his child. I've heard what he had to say according to uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. I've, I've believed those things according to John chapter 8 and verse number 24. I have repented of my sin according to Luke chapter, or rather Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. I've, I have confessed that Jesus is the Christ. I have been baptized. In water, Acts chapter 2 and verse number 38, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I've done all those things. Good. But that not, that's not what this slide is speaking of. You see, doing all of those things in order to become a child of God is great. And that is the greatest place and really the only place to start. You know what the key word of that sentence is? Start. Unless, as you're walking down these stairs on either side, someone meets you at the bottom of those stairs and hits you over the head with a lead pipe and kills you. You're going to have to do something with the start. A good start with a poor finish is a poor finish. Fullness in eternity involves me being faithful in the present. That's today. And then when tomorrow is today, that's today. And then when the next day is today, that's today. Because, even today, salvation costs a sacrifice. Well, what am I supposed to give, preacher, my life? Yep. You're not going to give your life up eternally the same way that Jesus the Christ did. God wouldn't expect that. But when I put on Jesus the Christ in baptism and I become the child of God, then I sacrifice myself to the will of God for the fullness of eternity and the faithfulness of the present. And if you've done all those things to start 
it would be a shame to have the greatest start and the worst finish. It would be a travesty of justice to, to have eternity in your hands only to have it taken away. Let me tell you about our brother. Our brother is mentioned three times in the New Testament. The first time he's mentioned, he's mentioned as a fellow laborer with Jesus or with Paul. Next, he's mentioned as one working alongside Paul. And then the last time he's ever mentioned within the scripture that God would inspire, Paul would write these words. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has gone off into Thessalonica. What for? Doesn't matter. He had the world's greatest start and the world's worst end. Don't finish the race the same way Demas did. Understand that fullness in eternity only comes by faithfulness in the present. If you've never put on Christ in baptism, that's where you need to start. You need to do those things that would make you a child of His. We've already talked about those this morning. If you find yourself His child and, and there's distance between you and your God, it's, it's time to close the gap. It's time to get rid of that distance. It's time to be faithful unto Him, starting right now, while we stand and sing for your encouragement.